It is Memorial Day. My son is asleep, so I might as well do a pair of podcasts. This is the 142nd Quackcast. It's called Cochrane Reviews, the food babe of medicine. The references, if you want them, are available over at Science-Based Medicine. There are two topics about which I know a fair amount. The first is infectious diseases. I am expert in infectious diseases, board certified and occasionally certified board by the ABIM. The other, although to a lesser extent, is supplements, complementary and alternative medicine, i.e. scams. When I read the literature on these topics, I do so with a fairly extensive knowledge and in the case of ID, 30 years of clinical experience. The extensive knowledge and one hopes understanding has led me to read meta-analyses with a grain of salt substitute. The average meta-analysis and systematic review is good for gaining a general understanding of the topic within, as well as, and here's the key phrase, the limitations of the included studies. And like all the published literature, when writing a meta-analysis, those with an axe to grind will grind it, even, or perhaps especially, the Cochrane Reviews. I have discussed the bias of the authors of the Cochrane Reviews on influenza several times at Science-Based Medicine and in these podcasts. Quote, just because something is labeled as a systematic review does not mean it is any good. We have to be just as vigilant now as ever. Even a review with a Cochrane label on it does not make it true. Four out of 12 Cochrane Reviews on acupuncture were wrong. Caveat lector rules, okay? End of quote. Randomized placebo-controlled trials are definitive if well done, but all too often they are done on a well-defined population, and how widely applicable the results are is always a question. When I was a resident, it seemed that all the cardiovascular intervention studies were done on a VA population, and we always wondered how applicable outcomes on old, white, male smokers were to other patient populations. All clinical trials are part of context of the medical literature, and Zygris was a classic example of how a single study may not be definitive or even right. Even in a field as binary as infectious diseases, it is not always clear-cut what the right intervention is from individual clinical trials, and you have to try and synthesize the conclusions from a preponderance of data. As I had mentioned before, the theory behind a meta-analysis is that if you gather all the cow pies into one big pile, you get clinical gold. I think they are often better as an overview of a topic rather than as a tool for coming to a definitive conclusion as to the benefit of a particular intervention, especially since meta-analysis do a poor job of predicting the results of, perhaps, a definitive clinical trial. Garbage in, garbage out is perhaps the most common result of a meta-analysis. Reading the Cochrane reviews of late, I am less certain that their output is gold, but perhaps a larger pile of the original material. Take Olsatamivir, aka Tamiflu, please. As mentioned, I am an infectious disease doctor, and this year, 2013-14, was the second worst influenza outbreak of my career. One of the hospitals in our systems is a level 1 trauma center, and we offer ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So we tend to see those who are the most ill from influenza and other similar illnesses.
And I will say, on balance, I was glad that we had Ulcetamivir during the outbreaks. How, or perhaps do, infectious disease doctors think? Well, infections are caused by germs. Duh. But not everyone thinks so. Germs come in a wide variety of forms. There's viruses and bacteria and fungi and parasites and more. I once did a rough count, and if you were a splitter, there are maybe, I don't know, 1,200 common germs I need to know to do my job. See, ID isn't that hard. And we treat those germs with antibiotics. Antibiotics usually interfere with one biochemical pathway or another to disable or kill a germ. Antiseptics, like alcohol, kill non-specifically. Some antibiotics are cytal, bactericidal, they kill the germs. Some are static, they simply stop the germ from functioning, but once the antibiotic is removed, the bacteria get back to business as usual. For many infections, but not all, static is actually good enough. You don't have to kill the bug. Stop it from dividing, and the host immune system, if there is one, will have time to catch up and take care of the infection. Viruses are not alive. I know that's an iffy statement. So they can't be killed. It is part of the reason that antivirals are just okay as a therapeutic intervention. It would be nice if our drugs against viruses were as good as our drugs against Streptococcus pyogenes, group A strep, and eradicate them, but they don't. As a clinician, what you expect with an antiviral is to take an edge off the illness. If you have genital herpes, you will get fewer attacks with less severity. For HIV, it took the use of three antivirals to have a significant effect on the virus, and they are still not a cure of the infection. Influenza, you would expect a mild amelioration of the disease given that the drugs are usually given late in the process of a robust viral replication. When you give influenza medications to people, it's usually two or three days into the course of the disease, so you're unlikely to have a major impact on all the injury that's gone on before. Of course, not all viruses are the same and not all infections are the same. Outcomes depend on a complex integration of pathogen lifestyle, actually that's life cycle, pathogenicity, the host's immune system, and the ability of the medication to affect the organisms. And sometimes, for some patients, the difference between doing well and doing poorly may be due to relatively small shifts in favor of the infection. Now, ulcetamivir is an okay drug for the treatment of influenza. By the time most patients get to a doctor, get the medication, get it filled, and then get steady state with the drug, the virus has had ample time, several days, to run rampant and I would expect that ulcetamivir would, in normal people, not do much more than take the edge off the disease. And as a recent meta-analysis in the British Medical Journal demonstrates, that is what ulcetamivir does in relatively normal people in the outpatient setting. Note, relatively normal people in the outpatient setting. The article was ulcetamivir for influenza in adults and children. Systematic Review of Clinical Study Reports and Summary of Regulatory Comments. As we have known for a while, ulcetamivir shortens the illness by about a day in relatively normal outpatients. It may reduce pneumonia. It modestly reduces the risk of symptomatic flu in individuals and households. And there are side effects. There always are. 
The results of the meta-analysis confirm what was already known. Ulcitamivir is a drug of modest efficacy in treating influenza in a mostly normal outpatient population. And while shortening the illness by about a day, little less actually, may not seem like a big deal, if you are a single parent living paycheck to paycheck and you have to stay home for a day to take care of a kid, or if you're home ill, getting well a day sooner has significant economic impact on your life. I'm not saying that's necessarily a reason to treat influenza with ulcitamivir, but in some economic populations, being sick for a day can be devastating to their bottom line. Most people on the planet are not well-to-do physicians with a salary and health insurance through a major organization. So in populations like the poor and the under or uninsured, not having your illness shortened by a day could be critical to your bottom line. Although, of course, you're not going to be able to afford the ulcitamivir anyway. The authors did a tremendous amount of work, and the basic results are sound. Then the editorializing slips into the discussion, ground to a fineness of the atomic axe. Two of the authors of this paper have a strong bias against the treatment and prevention of influenza by the current methodologies. And I have discussed Jefferson's semi-coherent arguments concerning influenza in another post. And it is safe to say that Doshi, another author, and I are not on the same planet about influenza, since he considers that, quote, for the vast majority, influenza is unpleasant but self-limiting, end of quote. It is a characteristic of those who are against the current treatments and prevention of infections and vaccinations to directly or indirectly minimize the suffering and death due to those infections. They usually use the word only in front of morbidity and mortality statistics. It is certainly true that I see the minority of influenza patients. I see those who are trying to die. The approximately 18,000 Americans who died in 2009 of H1N1 were a minority of the 60.8 million cases. But as a physician, I tend to side with John Donne in my approach to the ill and the dying. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. If the patient is sick enough to be hospitalized, prompt therapy with ulcitamivir probably decreases the odds of needing to go to the ICU and if you are in the ICU or pregnant, probably decreases your chances of dying of influenza. Note, decreases the chance the data is not great, but it is consistent. In hospitalized patients, ulcitamivir decreases the chance of death. When thinking about treating populations during a pandemic, having sufficient medication available would probably be a good thing for those ill enough to acquire hospitalization. The problem is that if you were deciding to stockpile drug for an infection like influenza, is the virus's variability. This century, we have had influenza with high mortality but low infectivity, and low mortality but high infectivity. When, and not if, we get a strain of influenza with both high infectivity and high mortality, we will probably be thankful that we have ulcitamivir, 
and given the data, it will probably prevent some from dying of the disease. Not all, but some. Of course, those in public health are screwed no matter what they do. If they prepare and stockpile ulcitamivir and the pandemic does not occur, they wasted money. And if there is an infectious disease equivalent of Katrina, no preparation will ever be enough. The scariest thing in my career was the 2009 H1N1, when in Portland, every bed in the ICU and every ventilator we had was being used. If another patient came in the ICU with influenza and needed respiratory support, we had nothing to offer them. And by total luck, we peaked exactly at our surge capacity. And thanks to the ICU, ECMO, and maybe also Tamivir, some people who should have died did not die. Whether we should stockpile anti-influenza medication, spend the money and time is an interesting political question. Of course, we never have an honest conversation about health care in the United States, so let's make a decision based on a good study with flawed and misleading propaganda in the discussion and conclusion. Eh, sounds about right for a country that gets all Wiggins about death panels. However, I do not think the data on the efficacy of treating influenza in relatively healthy outpatient populations during influenza seasons of relatively low morbidity and mortality really informs decisions as to the appropriateness of stockpiling drugs for a repeat of the pandemic of 1919. The 1919 pandemic of influenza killed 5% of the American population, an estimated 575,000 Americans. The total combat deaths of all Americans for all wars is about 875,000. So in three months, influenza killed 675,000 Americans and was probably the worst epidemic disaster in the country's history. And if one of the bird influenzas becomes contagious with its 60 to 80% mortality, we could be toast. They do allude to this exact issue in their conclusion, quote, given that ulcitamivir is now recommended as an essential medicine for the treatment of seriously ill patients or those in high risk groups with pandemic influenza, the issues of mode of action, lack of sizable benefits and toxicity are a concern. This is made worse by the record and stated intentions of governments to distribute ulcitamivir to healthy people to prevent complications and interrupt transmissions on the basis of a published evidence base which has been affected by reporting bias, if the shoe fits, ghost authorship, and poor methods. We believe these findings provide reason to question the stockpiling of ulcitamivir, its inclusion on the WHO list of essential drugs, and its use in the clinical practice as an anti-influenza drug, end of quote. Note, seriously ill patients are those in higher risk groups. Those are the exact populations not covered in this meta-analysis. Those who may die and, at least from observational studies, get benefit from ulcitamivir. I like to know how they analyze one patient population and then they try and apply it to another patient population where the preponderance of data suggests that there is benefit from treating with ulcitamivir. And if you are dying of influenza, those side effects are a little less important. I would take a bit of a headache and kidney dysfunction to avoid being buried six feet under. 
Not that it stopped anyone from reporting the conclusions of the study without a modicum of critical thought. Most of the secondary reporting repeated the no stockpiling message and that ulcitamivir therapy wasn't good. The anti-Tamiflu propaganda component seems to have far exceeded the actual results of the paper. Personally, I would lean towards stockpile. As an infectious disease doc, I keep the 1919 pandemic in the back of my brain. I like to keep the bell from tolling. But to use the BMJ as evidence against stockpiling for a more virulent pandemic is, at least to my mind, inappropriate. Like I've said before, a meta-analysis is useful if you can use it to confirm your pre-existing bias and then ignore it if it does not. That bias can lead to some really food babying discussion, as is evident in the BMJ article. They suggest in the conclusion that there are, quote, the issues of mode of action, end of quote, for ulcitamivir. The paper says ulcitamivir may have an anti-inflammatory properties that make people with influenza-like illness feel better by shortening the duration of symptoms and reducing the occurrence of symptoms. And, quote, Sufficient plasma concentrations of ulcitamivir from orally administrated ulcitamivir phosphate may act directly on host's endogenous neuraminidase to reduce or suppress the immune response. The potential hypothermic or antipyretic effect of free ulcitamivir as a central nervous system depressant may also contribute to the apparent reduction of symptoms. End of quote. In the immortal words of Scooby-Doo, huh? Both of these paragraphs are not referenced. Residents at my hospitals know how enamored I am of the immunomodulatory effects of antibiotics, and I have never heard of any of these effects with ulcitamivir. So, I went looking. In mice, ulcitamivir given at 32 a thousand times the human dose causes hypothermia. In another mouse model, ulcitamivir led to a decrease in a variety of pulmonary cytokines. Color me unimpressed. And if you're going to use the mouse model, you might as well include all the animal studies that show increased survival with ulcitamivir. Oh no, wait. Only including those statements that support your contention is the food babe way and the Cochrane Review way. Quote, now, ulcitamivir is a neuraminidase inhibitor, serving as a competitive inhibitor of the activity, activity? the activity of the viral neuraminidase enzyme upon siliac acid, found on glycoproteins on the surface of normal human host cells. By blocking the activity of the enzyme, ulcitamivir prevents new viral particles from being released from infected cells. End of quote. That's the mechanism of action. As a rule, if you inhibit viral replication, you give the immune system a chance to catch up and you slow down the disease. I can find no data that the immunomodulatory effects of ulcitamivir are relevant in human disease at standard dosing, and the data in humans and animals all point to the usual mechanism by which antimicrobials work you get benefit by messing with the organism's metabolic pathways. Not only is the press not bothering to read the article with more critical thinking than the food babe, the Wikipedia editors fell for it hook, line, and stinker. Quote, 
Olsatamivir may reduce a low immune response with low levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. This may reduce the symptoms of influenza, but is not related to inhibition of virus replication. There's also a potential temperature lowering effect that could contribute to symptom reduction. The influenza virus specific mechanism of action proposed by the producers does not fit the clinical evidence. Evidence suggests a multi-system and central action, end of quote. Not. I need to go back and see if the Wikipedia has fixed this. But talk about gullible rubes writing that particular paragraph. Yeah, I know. I should go back and rewrite the paragraph. There's many things I need to do in life. It is amazing how easily and rapidly cow pies get spread on the internet. I suppose a meta-analysis gets halfway around the web before the truth has a chance to get its shoes on. As best I can tell, these two ideas are far more for the purpose of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It is of food babian proportions to suggest that the primary mode of an antiviral is due to its immunomodulatory effects rather than messing with viral replication, considering the nature of the data supporting the idea and the bulk of literature that shows that messing with the metabolic pathways of the virus is what causes benefit. All the data suggests the benefit is by slowing down the virus in humans and in animals. They continue, quote, Olsatamivir relieves symptoms in otherwise healthy children, but has no effect on children with asthma who have influenza-like illness, a population that should most benefit from its intake, end of quote. That's the Cochrane Review, not the Wikipedia. But should it? I don't know. That's why we do studies. I would expect valacyclovir suppression to help with recurrent herpes meningitis. It doesn't. It makes the disease worse. That doesn't mean that valacyclovir is ineffective for other manifestation of the disease or in other patient populations. Quote, An explanation for this finding is the nature of the young asthmatic population, which is well cared for and used to a regular intake of powerful drugs, I hate it when people use the word powerful in reference to drugs. It's a marketing ploy. What you want to give people, as always, is appropriate drugs for their disease state. And close follow-up. The incremental benefit of olsatamivir assumption is thus likely to be undetectable in such a population. End of quote. On the other hand, once lung inflammation started because of influenza, I would expect cough and shortness of breath to be hard to control as the asthma component kicked in and inhaled steroids known to be an increase for the risk of pneumonia and TB may suppress local inflammation to decrease local immune response in favor of infection and prolong illness. The Cochrane Review continues, quote, the Olsatamivir trials did not detect any influenza-related mortality events, a reflection of the benign nature of influenza and influenza-like illness, and perhaps trial design, end of quote. Or it could have been a healthier population with prior immunity from prior disease exposure and vaccination. Outpatient antibiotic studies are usually done in patients with little risk for mortality. And until 2009 H1N1 flu seasons, we have had relatively mild influenza season, except, of course, for those who died. The mortality from flu leading up to the release of olsatamivir in 1996 was comparatively low. Test the drug during a benign flu season and you will not see mortality. 
There is a lot of good information in the article, but the bias and the fear, uncertainty, and doubt rendered it, like much of the Cochrane Influenza reviews, more infomercial than a nuanced discussion of a complicated topic. And while I did not go through all the supplementary material, I did not see that they suggested that ulcetamivir is used in the manufacture of yoga mats, but that's not for a lack of trying. There are other goofy Cochrane reviews that leave me wondering about their standards. They evidently operate on the assumption that every intervention, no matter how ridiculous, should be subject to a meta-analysis. When all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. So we get acupuncture for mumps. Quote, We could not reach any confident conclusions about the efficacy and safety of acupuncture based on one study. That's right. They did a meta-analysis of one study. More high-quality research is needed, end of quote. No, it isn't. We don't need to test acupuncture for mumps. Our, quote, homeopathic oscillococcinum for preventing and treating influenza and influenza-like illness. Our findings do not rule out the possibility that oscillococcinum could have a clinically useful treatment effect. It doesn't. But given the low quality of the eligible studies, the evidence is not compelling, end of quote. They think a meta-analysis on magic is going to have compelling results? It is a tough job, but I guess someone has to see if magic is effective. But if you want the ultimate in goofy, you have to turn to vitamin C for preventing and treating the common cold, which contains what may very well be the most dumbass statement in the medical literature for 2014 and perhaps ever. Here it goes. Author's Conclusions The failure of vitamin C supplementation to reduce the incidence of colds in the general population indicates that routine vitamin C supplementation is not justified. It vitamin C may be useful for people exposed to brief periods of severe physical exercise. Regular supplementation trials have shown that vitamin C reduces the duration of colds, but this was not replicated in the few therapeutic trials that have been carried out, end of quote. Fine so far. The literature shows vitamin C is of minimal benefit, probably none, for the prevention of cold and prevention. In terms of duration of illness, no better than ulcetamivir. As they say in the main conclusion, 31 comparisons examined the effect of regular vitamin C on common cold duration. In the adults, the duration of cold was reduced by 8%, and in children, 14%. In children, 1 to 2 grams of vitamin C shortened colds by 18%. The severity of colds was also reduced by regular vitamin C administration. Seven comparisons examined the effect of therapeutic vitamin C, no consistent effect of vitamin C was seen on the duration or severity of colds in therapeutic trials. So, here it comes. Ready? It's really mutton-headed. Don't say I didn't warn you, because as my favorite box of blinking lights likes to say, it has napalm levels of burning stupid. Quote, Nevertheless, Given the consistent effect of vitamin C on the duration and severity of colds in regular supplementation studies and the low cost and safety, here comes the apex of idiocy. Quote, 
it may be worthwhile for common cold patients to test on an individual basis whether therapeutic vitamin C is beneficial for them. End of quote. A more pathetic example of what's the harm shrugery I cannot imagine. As if there is any way a patient can really know if vitamin C does anything for them. Cochrane, please, give me a framework I can suggest to my patient that they can apply to determine if vitamin C is effective. I'm waiting. Godot will arrive sooner. The uselessness of personal experience in determining efficacy of medical interventions is why we do clinical trials. For crying out loud, I thought it was the raison d'etre of the whole Cochrane Collaborative, relying on evidence instead of anecdotes. Wrong. All the confounding biases would render such an endeavor useless. It is why the words, in my experience, are the most dangerous in medicine for determining if an intervention is effective. And it is exactly what they suggest. So why even bother with the analysis in the first place? Try it, you like it. If there is a worse statement in all of published evidence-based medicine, let me know, because I don't think so. There was a time when I was under the impression that the conclusions of a Cochrane review were of value. No more. Now I see one and I roll my eyes. Cochrane reviews. Food babe. What kind of nonsense is this one going to have? And that ends the 142nd QuackCast. References are available over at Science-Based Medicine. Also, check out the Society for Science-Based Medicine, our relatively new organization for the promotion of, well, science-based medicine. And there was a foo bar at Apple and all my reviews got trashed, disappeared into the ether. So if you're bored, go to iTunes and write me glowing reviews. See you later. Bye.